and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Please do not touch that iPhone. This is the remnant, but I am not Jonah Goldberg. Jonah is still wandering around somewhere in the United States of America at an undisclosed location. Um, my guest here, I am David French. My guest here is my good friend, my former National Review colleague, Jim Garrity. Jim, thanks for joining us. David, it's good to be with you. And uh, I guess Jonah's playing the role of Carmen Sandiego this week. Where in the world is he? <laughs> well, where, uh, well, I can narrow it down to the U.S. because... <laughs> He can't leave the U.S. Like we're we we're we're blocked into this this country basically, uh, but I, I will say this: um, I'm just going to say I don't know where he is, um, but I will not use the Rich Lowryism of on assignment, uh, <laughs> which you know part of how the sausage is made. No one's heard from Kevin Williamson in three weeks. He must yes. be on assignment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Kevin does not wander off. He's you know. <laughs> So we, I, I'm really excited about this uh, podcast. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and only some of it will be rank punditry. Uh, we're going to start off with definite non-rank punditry. If you do not subscribe to Jim's Morning Jolt, uh, the National Review newsletter, you shame on you. You should subscribe to it. Uh, it's always been good, but Jim, I got to say, I've always been a fan of your work, but you hit a different level during COVID. Um, it just really, you know, what I really appreciated about it, it was so level-headed. It was so, it was, uh, it was both serious and non-hysterical at the same time. And it was packed with condensed information that I, I found personally, I found to be invaluable. Well, David, thank you. Um, I, I don't think it's all that surprising and people who've read me for a long time could figure out. When this hit, and I would think March 12th is the easiest date to think of as the day that everything seemed to change. It was after that Trump had given his speech about Europe. The NBA canceled their season, and mm -hmm. um, Tom Hanks announced that he, had, he and Rita Wilson had tested positive. And for some reason in America, when a, something happens to a celebrity, that's when it becomes yeah. real. Um, but that was the next day was the last day of school for my kids. And yeah. it was initially a, we're just closing for a couple of days to think through how we want to handle this okay, we're closed for a week. Okay, we're closed for two weeks, then a mm -hmm. month. And then uh, Governor Ralph Northam, in his infinite wisdom, believed that you know, the state was not safe, not enough people were wearing hoods, I'm sorry, masks, and um, <laughs> that, uh, oh, no, ev no. that everyone, school should be out for the rest of the year. And that's, yeah, that was off and running, uh, that you know, life had changed. And the usual yeah. stuff that I write about in a political newsletter didn't seem all that interesting and important compared to the biggest story in the whole wide world. Yeah. Well, you know, I was trying to think of an analogy of, you know, a, a great athlete upping their game. And the best I've come up with, Dame Lillard in bubble basketball uh, in the NBA restart. I don't know if you followed that at all, but Damian Lillard, already an all-star, already all-NBA, uh, and already an all-NBA talent, just took it to another level in the seeding games. You know, David, you're the like third or fourth person who's made that comparison. No, you're the first person. Who, I have no idea who you're talking about, but I'll take it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, as long as you didn't on. say oh. like, you know, OJ, when he ran for 2001 season, you're, you know, 
uh, you're stabbing to the heart of the issue or something. That that's fine. So. <laughs> no, but so I, most uh, well, I hope some I hope some listeners will appreciate the Dame Lillard comparison. Um, I, I just got an email asking me, "Are you going to watch the convention tonight?" And I responded, "Do I have to? I'd plan to watch Lakers Blazers." <laughs> um, so I'm I'm going to rely on you and the jolt, Jim. I'm going to rely on you and the jolt on t- uh, tomorrow morning to tell me what to think. Yeah, this is one of the weird circumstances in which uh, our, our mutual friend Charlie Cook is periodically sending me emails saying, you're watching tonight, right? Uh, because <laughs> honestly, here's the, the funny thing is that um, I've been to every convention for both parties going back to Republicans in Philadelphia in 2000. So I had a nice long streak. And, uh, look, you know, for people who think they're boring, fine. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say they are uh, as cool as the NBA finals or, or, or Super Bowl or something like that. But if you're a political junkie, it's Disneyland. It's everybody in a particular party yeah. in one place at one time. It's really the only time every four years that this happens. And you have uh, you know, more interview opportunities and more you know, celebrities running around. And just, you know, you for a reporter, this is everybody you want all in one place, and you're just gonna bump into them walking down the street or in the hallways or stuff like that. So for news gathering, it's it's one of the best times. And obviously it's not happening anything resembling the usual format. What we saw last night, uh, as of this taping, this only we're only one night into this, and um, David, you're not going to miss much. This this is really <laughs> painful watching. Um, yeah, yeah. All the all the comparisons of a series of Zoom calls or uh, a telethon or you know the 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 response to the State of the Union over and over again. It's this is not fun watching. Yeah, I did. I did miss i believe billy porter and steven sills uh performing for what it's worth at the very end uh did you did you see that little um that little clip yeah i mean here's the thing it uh, uh mtv no longer shows music videos but we are getting them at the <laughs> uh the democratic national convention so that kind of offsets it um yeah that that was bizarre yeah well A but we're getting ahead of stuff. ourselves yeah so. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're, sure. We don't want to dip our toes into the rank punditry yet. Let, yeah. Let's talk. Let, let's um, instead back up. Let's take a look at uh, what is the state of the United States and the coronavirus um, as of today. And as of today, it appears that, and you tell me if you think this is wrong, uh, that there are, there, we're, in a, we're in a good news cycle after a bad news cycle that the number of daily cases is going down. Uh, The most recent death data indicates that we seem to have had a second and smaller peak after the first and large peak. Um, And that while we've not done well, we're doing better again. (laughs) Is that a a fair assessment? It it is. Um, I think one of the odd things, and I talked about how much my newsletter and a lot of what I was covering became just you know, some would argue obsessed, certainly, you know, extraordinarily mm-hmm. focused on the pandemic and its effects. Um, you know, it feels like it's turned into background noise. And I don't know mm-hmm. if that's good news or bad news. Uh, I went back and I looked. Um, my favorite measuring stick is worldometers. If you prefer the Johns Hopkins University numbers, fine. There's a little bit of a yeah. difference, but they're not wildly out of whack. Um, and I went back and I checked, David. And uh, as of, you know, Sunday to Saturday of last week, 7,468 Americans died. So averaging a little more than a thousand a day. Yeah. Ironically, that's an improvement. We were yeah. very much in that 1500 number earlier in the spring. We were at the 2000 number. Um, we're seeing a slow, generally steady decline in these numbers. Um, 
it's worth noting, obviously, if you look at it day by day, that weekends you have much fewer numbers get reported, mm-hmm. and then often that gets into, put into Monday's pile. It's getting a little bit better, um, but it's, you know, look, there's no getting around it. But by almost every count, we're at 170,000 dead so far. Yeah. Almost everybody believes we'll be at around 200,000 sometime in September. Um, and I guess if I'm thinking of any kind of measuring stick of just how bad is this going to be before we get a vaccine, hopefully early next year, you know, it, we're going to go past 200,000. You know, can we keep it below 300? Um, yeah. And that's, th- those are awful numbers. Those, those are, horrifying. Um, and, and it's been extraordinarily frustrating this, throughout this entire process. There are a couple of factors that make people want to believe it's not that bad. That, that you know, this is, this mm-hmm. is media hype or, or something like that. Um, one factor is, and, and we saw this at the very beginning of this pandemic, normalcy bias. Today is like yesterday, so we want to believe that tomorrow is going to be like today. People yeah. don't like to hear, oh no, things are really bad, and your life is going to change, and you can't right. do the things you're used to doing. Um, you, you sound, you know, because, you know, 99 times out of 100, the person walking around with the placard that says the end is near turns out to be a wacko. You know, Y2K, <laughs> we all remember all the times we were told something terrible is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. So our lesson we take from this is that, oh, okay, mo- you know, bird flu did not turn into a menace to most Americans. The first SARS, the Zika virus, you go down the list, most pandemics around the world in the last 15, 20 years really didn't hit the United States that badly. Yeah. When we first heard about this weird thing going on in Wuhan, most people are like, ah, you know, it's probably that same, same kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I remember watching the, seeing on, on the internet, the videos of this bizarre cannon they were spraying the streets with, with some sort of disinfectant. And the degree, I think what it really got me is when they shut down um, Beijing and Shanghai. And mm-hmm. the recognition that, look, the Chinese government is not hearts and flowers and all big on caring about each other and, and worrying about public health. They only shut this down if something really, really bad is happening. Yeah. And that they're generally worried about losing control of the country if this gets if this gets much worse. So that to me was a giant red flag, no pun intended. Um, mm-hmm. That what they were dealing with was really serious and not the sort of thing we could just kind of shrug off and say, "Ah, eh, this will be a short-term story." I, I think I what you go back and you check. At one point early on, I said, "You know, the coronavirus could be almost as big a story as the presidential election." Almost, <laughs> almost. You know, I think everybody had a different "oh crap" moment uh, of. Oh, this this thing is real, and there are still some people who've not yet had that. To be honest, <laughs> there's yeah, I still run into people in in daily life who who question the death counts, not just the within you know a, a few percentage points, which you know it, it might be never that we learn the exact precise death toll, but we we now have excess mortality data. We have a lot more confidence that these numbers that we're getting are generally accurate. So I'm not talking about the people who question whether we're off by five or 10 or even 20% in these numbers. I'm still running into people who, who basically denigrate it as something that's basic, that's essentially the flu. That's not very many people anymore. Um, but I think different people had a different, oh crap moment. And I, for me, it was that transition from China to Italy. Mm -hmm. So you know, you never know what to believe in your reporting that you're getting out of China. Um, and I completely hear you on, wait a minute, the PRC is not exactly known for its high regard for the lives of its citizens. And they're doing all of these things. And that sort of, I probably should have been immediately alert at that point. I was kind of cocking my head and saying, what? Um, 
but then as it, as it just began to descend on Italy, and you realize this thing is on the complete other side of the globe, there is nothing about our experience that should make us believe in any way, shape, or form that we're immune to it. Um, and then at that point, you know, at that point, you're realizing there's just nothing here that is remotely a hoax. There is a lot here to be to be really concerned about. So let me let me ask you this, okay? Um, we have had, we just had on, on Monday, uh, Andrew Cuomo was prominent in the Democratic Convention. He has a bad record, okay? So I, I also look at worldometers uh, myself. And so here is the current deaths per million in the state of New York, 1,692, Okay. Well, there's another large state across the ocean, uh, across the uh, continent, California, deaths per million, 287. I've got two questions for you, Jim. One pandemic, one political. Pandemic-wise, why is New York almost safe, uh, seven times worse uh, than California? Um, and to political, why then is why why then are Democrats continuing to hype Andrew Cuomo rather than say Gavin Newsom? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, on that first one, big inter- big cities with a lot of international tra- uh, air travel were always going to be probably your first spot you were going to have an outbreak because that's where mm-hmm. um, people are coming in. People come in from China to a whole bunch of U.S. cities, but clearly New York is high up there. Um, also, as, as many virologists suspect, population density is one of your biggest factors in how quickly a virus spreads from one place to another. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yes, Los Angeles has big skyscrapers. Uh, you know, there's population density in, in just about every large city. But New York has people really packed in. Um, and then, of course, you throw in things like the subways. Uh, there's just more use of mass transit in New York City than in a whole bunch of other cities across the United States. Um, one of my first articles that in this that I thought was kind of important is I went back and I looked at all the different things New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio had said leading up to this. And up oh until my. that second week of March, Bill de Blasio was saying, you have nothing to worry about from public transportation. There is no indication we need to have anything to worry about. This is fine. So um, the president gets a lot of grief for his response to this, and he deserves it. This is He, he has handled this badly in a whole bunch of ways but he's not the only one and the president has been so bad that a whole bunch of folks who did not handle this well are enjoying pointing to the president saying it's going to disappear one day it's going to go away you know all that kind of stuff um now you mentioned and i think that ties into the answer on cuomo you you know sheer numbers new york city and in the new york new jersey by the way phil murphy in gov in new jersey is not doing that much better um the whole new york greater new york city area got hit really really badly so if you're a left of center Democrat and you just instinctively believe that Democrats are just better people and Democrat <laughs> leaders just do a better job, it's just self-evident, um, then probably, you know, it wouldn't take that much sodium pentothal to get Democrats to admit, okay, maybe Bill de Blasio is not a Mensa candidate and is yeah. not the very best uh, that we possibly could hope for in this moment. Um, Phil Murphy, oddly, is kind of a non-entity, certainly on the national stage, but, but Andrew Cuomo. He's the son of Mario Cuomo. His brother is mm-hmm. the anchor on CNN primetime, which certainly helps guarantee a lot of people in the media world think well of you. you get, instead of having to do a tough interview with, say, Chris Wallace, 
anytime Andrew Cuomo wanted, he could go on and do wacky prop comedy of mom likes you, but like the Smothers Brothers or something. Some yeah, sort of like, yeah. by the way, really intelligence insulting shtick that really was unbecoming of CNN and uh, uh, of the governorship. That, that this, there were harder questions that needed to be asked, and they weren't going to come from from Chris Cuomo. Um, so I, I think there was some, like, you know, why do Democrats revere the treatment of Andrew Cuomo? In one part, David, because they had to. They needed yeah. somebody in the New York City area who they could paint as the hero if they were going to concede that Bill de Blasio didn't do a great job, et cetera. And the second thing also is that, look, Cuomo's persona in his news briefings were fine. I, yeah, we, yeah, we have big beefs with his decisions, most specifically putting senior citizens who had been diagnosed with coronavirus and who may have been recovering but who were still contagious and sending them back into the nursing homes. I think it was the single most consequential decision at any level of government in this. And oh, by the way, New Jersey did this. Uh, California did set up financial incentives for this. I believe they did this in Michigan under Gretchen Whitmer as well. A whole bunch of, a whole bunch of governors had this mentality of, wow, we really need to open up hospital beds as quickly as possible, which was a, a reasonable concern. And they decided, how do we get these folks out of the hospital as quickly as possible? I know, let's send them back to the nursing home terrible decision yeah. uh you know um but that was the thinking there so again i think there's some of that and again cuomo had good persona in this and the contrast with the president of the united states was pretty self-evident there you know the, the, the short answer is andrew cuomo played the role well um gavin newsom's got some praise and i think as you said by sheer numbers he should get some by sheer numbers um david Ige on hawaii up until very recently was doing a good job Except unemployment in Hawaii is like 23%. <laughs> you know, right. like, you know, yeah. As long as you're willing to destroy your state's economy, you can do great on coronavirus cases. Oh, I mean, oh it helps if your state's an island. No, I, I can't. Uh, yeah, I think I th you're completely right that there was, particularly from de Blasio, if you unwind, you know, there's been a number of TikToks of all of the sort of timelines of all of these things that Trump said that were just completely, the op just completely wrong, completely irresponsible. De Blasio's got his own timeline. Yeah. And if, if we do, if there, you know, I, I would hope that we are able to do a 9-11 commission when, when we emerge, start to emerge on the other side of this, a 9-11 commission style look at unsparing look at who did what, what did we do wrong? Because this is not going to be the last infectious disease that we have to confront, a uh, new infectious disease. So, and I don't think de Blasio certainly, and I don't think Andrew Cuomo comes out of this well. And I, and I think that, you know, I completely hear you on the population density issue, but for the Bay area is also a quite dense area. It's not as dense as Manhattan and the five boroughs, but it's, you know, San Francisco is a pretty dense place and it's death rate is a fraction of New York's. And, and so there are, there's luck that comes into play here. There's no question about that. There is luck that comes into play here. But I'll tell you one thing that I think that we have learned here is that competence is not necessarily tied to whether you have the R or the D by your name. <laughs> and we've seen wildly varying qualities of reaction that's partisan independent. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's sometimes tough for us to absorb in a hyper-polarized time. No, look, I mean, here's the thing. Well, first of all, I, there's, it, it's funny, you know, uh, David, you are among the more, you know, famous or infamous uh, <laughs> figures uh, associated with Never Trump, uh, with the presidential bid of, of about 10 minutes or so. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you, you're, you know, so many lovely letters from all these fans of Trump all across the country and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, 
I am, if, if not, if, if not a never Trump, I'm a deep Trump skeptic from the very beginning. Right. Got elected. All right. I'm going to give him credit where it's due and not all the blame for the pandemic can be laid at his feet. Um, but I was never, you know, going to be a Trump guy for a whole bunch of reasons. And a big one mm-hmm. being that my all time favorites of, of, of political leaders are in that category of conservatives who get stuff done. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm the last, uh, you know, disciple of Bobby Jindal. Uh, I had high thoughts of Rick Perry. Uh, yeah. give, give me any Republican governor who has gotten stuff done in their state. And that's kind yeah. of what I want to see in the Oval Office. Donald Trump was not that. Donald Trump was, you know, was best known for going on cable news and saying mm-hmm. things that Republican primary voters wanted to hear. And he did it in a yeah. very entertaining way. That's fine. He can do, you know, like that's, if, you know, that's your taste. I'll, I'll try not to make too much fun of you. Um, but I believe this is what you get. And, and this is yeah. not, brother. This is not merely a phenomenon only found on the Republican side of the aisle. I think Alan Grayson is probably a good example of on the Democratic side of someone who attracts attention for being a larger than life pos- uh, personality. You know, spittle flecking fury at the opposition, and basically being a a you know liberal blog comment section brought to life. And that is what a lot of people in politics want. The problem is. Politics is not sports, despite the fact that you love the NBA and I constantly complain about the Jets. Politics is different. Politics is about governance. Governance is about policy. Policy is boring. You need people who can pay attention and keep track of the details of policy if you want good government. And I hate to tell you this, folks, but this means politics is not always going to be entertaining. It's not meant to be entertainment. This all goes back, you know, spare listeners of the remnant all this and you david but i have like a three-hour rant that everything goes back to mtv rock the vote the idea that (laughs) these celebrities are coming out madonna with these public service announcements saying if you don't vote i'm going to give you a spanking and all that kind of stuff like no if if you don't care about politics that's fine don't care just don't vote don't don't weigh in on which person strikes you as uh more fun to be around or or something like that because that's not what governance is all about and I realize this is, you know, this is about as Sisyphean as it gets in the year 2020. But then, Jim, that means that everything goes back to like Tipper Gore and the Parents Television Council or whatever, because Rock the Vote was a reaction to the effort to apply warning labels and mm-hmm. censor art. And so it all goes back to Tipper. Look, if you could go back in time, David, and warn people <laughs> that civilization will collapse because of Tipper Gore, and maybe <laughs> let's throw in like Jim, uh, Jenny McCarthy. Right. But these, these are <laughs> modern history's greatest monsters. Move yeah. over Milosevic. You know, these are the one, you know, that's, that's where well, we you are, know, I'm, I'm very glad you brought up that, look, some pol- politics, is, there, when, you're, when you actually are governing a state or you're actually governing a nation, there is a certain baseline level of competence that we should expect. The ability to, to assimilate uh, information rationally, the ability to provide leadership within some conventional definition of leadership, in other words, speaking truthfully, um, being able to direct a complex operation smoothly, all of these things are, are really, they're just not easy. They're, they're not easy at all. And, and, you know, there's an awful lot of people who've said, okay, well, could anyone else have done better? Could anyone else have done better in sort of in defense of Trump? But at some point, there is just, there's just this response that you have that says, well, could anyone else, virtually almost all other advanced developed democracies have done better to this point? 
Um, just going back to Worldometer, and you look at the the deaths per million, which is much more, in my view, of a reliable indicator of how well countries have done because new cases and total cases depend a lot on you know number of tests and efficiency of testing operations, et cetera. Right now, um, the U.S. of the advanced developed democracies, the only countries in the world. I'm not counting sort of the developing countries in South America or the micro countries like San Marino or Andorra, but the countries in the world that have done worse than us on a deaths per million basis are Sweden, which went straight to, to herd immunity and we're on pace to pass them here soon. Italy, which was one of the first hit and hardest hit and we're on a pace to pass them soon. The UK, which tried herd immunity briefly before the lockdown and we're on a pace to pass them and Spain, which we're on a pace to pass them, I think we may end up, by the time this is all over, only behind Belgium in the advanced democracies, fully developed democracies, uh, economically developed democracies in the world in dealing with this virus. And the answer is going to be, well, who could have done better? Well, everybody except Belgium is not a great answer for the United States of America. Yeah, I was going to say, as I'm listening to you lay that out, David, I can make a, what people are going to feel is a very half-hearted defense of Trump, and then I'll kind of whip it around to turn into a new form of indictment. Um, <laughs> I think when all is said and done, I, I, hope to, I hope to be around in six months. I hope you're around in six months. I hope we're all around mm -hmm. in six months. And I think sometime we'll, we'll get, hopefully the vaccine, I think it'll be arrived around end of this year, beginning of next year. Mm -hmm. It'll take a, two, a couple of months to get this out to the American people. I think it's possible you know, kids, kids will go back to school and people will feel vaccinated and things will start to feel sort of back to normal right around the one year anniversary of, you know, March, mid-March mm -hmm. when this really seemed to hit hold. So it'll have been a really crappy year for a whole bunch of us, even yeah. if you didn't lose anyone you love or anything. Telling Americans, hey, we have this virus out there. And by the way, you know, it's, you may be at little risk, you may be at high risk. By the way, I think in addition to age and comorbidities and stuff like that, um, the more I research and read this stuff, the more I think there has to be some sort of genetic factor that we haven't mm. yet been able to identify. There right. are old people in nursing homes who get it and somehow manage to come through just fine. And there are younger, healthier people who succumb surprisingly quickly. And it's one yeah. of those things where I think years from now, we're going to look at it and say, aha, if you had this gene, and also when you hear about you know this, this virus hitting, killing three or four people in one family. Um, yeah. All of these anecdotes point to me that there's some sort of genetic factor that determines whether your body can fight this off or whether at some point it affects your lungs, it affects your heart, something happens where you just succumb to this. Um, I think anyway, you slice it. This is a really tough problem for any leader, no matter who had been president. Yes. And I think the other th factor is, is that, as I mentioned, you know, other countries got hit, you know, in, in China, in Japan, in Taiwan, all throughout Asia, somebody sneezes and everybody puts on their masks. Like they, they had a yeah. really rough experience with SARS in the year 2003. I had to go back and check. SARS came out when the Iraq war started. Mm -hmm. We in the United States were paying attention to other things than this. Oh, there's ever this new virus over in Asia. Um, we are, as a country, are a little more, I don't know if you want to call it libertarian-minded, or we just don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like it to be, whether it's the form of Andrew Cuomo, or whether it's Karen down the street telling us, you know, mm -hmm. put on your mask and all that kind of stuff. So there were always going to be certain factors baked in the cake that would make managing the United States during a terrible contagious virus tougher than... Yeah, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan or, or, or totally concur. Countries. That said, that's why it's all the more important that leaders speak, I, I would argue, bluntly, honestly, right? 
if you are not careful with this, there is a chance it will kill you and you will yeah. die long before your time. That's what we needed to hear. Not, you know, David, it goes away very quickly. I think the, I think the warm weather, I was just speaking to Xi, but in China, they're doing a fantastic job. You know, that, yeah. none of that helped. All of that helped people think that this was nothing to worry about and to go about their lives. And I can't quantify how many people that may have hurt. I can't quantify how many people, but... It, it's more than a couple. I, you know, if we'd had consistent man, you know, like the White House is putting out opposition research on Fauci. Yeah, who does that? Like, like this is a White House that has. There, there's been this mentality of if we just don't think about it so hard, this pandemic's yeah. not going to be so bad. And you know, we, we we don't elect our leaders to be ostriches. I wrote something um, towards the beginning of all this that I just had this bad. I, I was beginning to have you know the to quote the Star Wars line repeated Star Wars line. I have a bad feeling about this. I, I had a bad feeling about our response as a culture to the virus because it was the kind of thing that requires a high trust response mm -hmm. for a civil society to pull together in a very low trust time. And I think that played out sort of uh, had ripple effects throughout our civil society so that there was almost nothing and, and, and again, it did not help that, you know, the president himself was constantly issuing mixed messages. They weren't mixed early on. Early on, they were, this is going to go away. This is nothing. 15 cases going to go down to zero. But then even as the crisis built, there were these mixed messages being sent. But what I began to notice was that there was just no trust in any information that contradicted our priors. And... And that had massive consequences. So I live in, in um, dispatch listeners have heard me say this before, but I live, of course, in middle of red America, uh, right on the edge of sort of between Nashville and rural Tennessee in a suburban county. I used to be in a much more rural county. And we were right, I would say, uh, not in the hotbed of anti-masking sentiment, but like right on the edge of it. And the... To the point where, you know, I have friends just who were just south of me in more rural areas that when they wear masks would receive like, what's the reverse? Is there like a reverse Karen, like critique for wearing a mask indoors? Carl. And, yes. and yeah, I guess Carl, you know, whatever. What is, what's the reverse Karen? But anyway, and what I what we saw here in Tennessee was in some ways kind of discouraging, followed by encouraging. Here, here was the discourage. They. Let me put it this way more. Let me be more precise. Encouraging, discouraging, encouraging. So we've had good leadership in Tennessee, I have to say. Uh, governors, mayors, we've had good leadership. So by the end of the first phase of the lockdown, we were top 10 per capita in testing, bottom 10 in the nation per capita and deaths per million. That's exactly where you want to be. So then we, we the, the government eases up, lets us out, and says, hey, guys, wear a mask, doesn't mandate, wear a mask, social distance. And the population, because in, I think in part because it hadn't been hit by the virus very much at all, treated this thing as if the virus had surrendered on the decks of the USS Missouri. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And next thing you know, we're slammed. Um, but then here's the encouraging thing. As soon as that perception kicked in that, oh, wait yeah, this is real. This isn't just something that's happening in the Northeast. What happened? You saw masks come on. And it, and it reminded me how vitally important civil society is 
and how deficient in many ways our civil society has become. Yeah, you know, I, I, I very much like the idea of this 9-11 style commission to just, you know, but when people look at it, they kind of have this idea of like a you know, South African Truth and Justice Commission. It's supposed <laughs> to go out and find people to blame. Eh, just, just, let's just do a really big detailed review yeah. of what we did right, what we did wrong, what we can learn, what we can use to prepare for the next one. And I think one of the things I wonder about, you know, that first, that, you know, second week of March, we, we see, okay, it's real. It's here. Yeah. And so most, pretty much the entire country went into a pretty sweeping lockdown of school closures, mm-hmm. work closures, all that kind of stuff. There were still a whole bunch of counties across the country that didn't have a single case, or at least a single yes. diagnosed case, right? Quite possibly in corners of Tennessee, or certainly in the upper Midwest, you know, outside of Northeast, there were probably a lot of communities that didn't have any coronavirus yet, and they yep. locked down. And I think it was always natural. People were going to have a limited amount of patience for lockdown. I, I still have this naively optimistic view about the American people that they want to help. They want to do the right thing. But we're asking a lot, right? You yeah. know, stay home, Netflix and chill, can, can work for a while. And then, you know, people need their paychecks. People need to go. They start going stir crazy. You know, um, we were asking the American people to do something they've nearly, that we really haven't done in 100 years. Mm-hmm. And it was... It's one of those things where I, you know, thought they were the right decision at the time, but I kind of felt like, man, if you, we need good judgment and we need, you know, people in, in leadership to really exercise, you know, to really walk the straight and narrow on this one. Yeah. And we can't have Gretchen Whitmer's husband say, hey, can you let my butt out early because I'm the governor's uh, yep. husband. We need, we don't need to have the surfer out in California arrested or the mom on the playground put in handcuffs or stuff like there. Any little story, story like that of cops being stupid, of government being stupid is going to completely undermine. And I think that's one of the reasons you've seen this, you know, this increasingly vehement anti-lockdown attitude coupled with the fact that, look, most people who are pro-lockdown are white collar, who can work Mm -hmm. from home, who are doing okay, and who are telling people who are blue collar, you know, you're irresponsible for wanting to reopen your bar, or alternately, you were, you're working at a, at a grocery store, and you're already living with the, the risk. You're, you're, you're having to figure out some way to function with this. Well, but for a long time, you know, this would, even the blue-collar voters were pro-lockdown for a, for a long time. But I, I hear you completely on the inconsistencies. And I think the one thing, if... I, I think if you're going to you're going to peg something where just a lot of the public support for lockdowns and not just lockdowns in the formal legal sense, because a lot of them were easing already mm-hmm. by the time of, say, the George Floyd protests. But the idea, sort of the cultural acceptance of the lockdown mentality really began to disintegrate around that time. I mean, oh, part of it, yeah. part of it was just the natural frustration. And then the, another part of it was. Why on earth, after we've been told forever and ever and ever, this is so dangerous, it's so dangerous to be out in closely packed circumstances, a lot of those people who were saying that were, were openly cheering the protests. And look, I mean, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that holding back those protests would have been trying to be about like trying to hold back a tsunami. But at, at the very least, you can say, this is dangerous. Yeah, people were this afraid to yeah to to react to them the way they reacted to any other gathering, including the you know. But for example, the infamous um, the pool of the Ozarks out you know that that yeah. everybody saw that video. Oh my goodness, two people got it. There were hundreds mm-hmm. of people there, right? Well, you know, yeah. sort of go luck of the draw. It was not actually that risky. Um, Phil Murphy of New Jersey, the governor, broke his own executive order on gatherings during right. you know the the George Floyd protests. Um, 
Now, I, it, people, I'm sure half the listeners are jumping up saying, yeah, see, it's the, it's the protests, and half the listeners are saying, wait, no, no, there wasn't any spread at the protests. No, there was some spread at the protests. It wasn't a big one. Thankfully, a lot of people were wearing masks. People were spreading around. It's outdoors, air currents. You didn't see many super spreader events at these protests. Right. That doesn't mean there wasn't any. A bunch of cops got them. And it's one of those things, like, you know, like th- this inability to handle, like, you know, compared to going to a movie theater and being around lots of other people coughing or breathing. It's, you know, mm-hmm. being at a protest is less dangerous than that. Right. But it's not, no, it's not, it's not dangerous at all. You know, like the, uh, you know, the, the virus could go to the protest too. Maybe the, you know, mm-hmm. that's, it's not like they, you know, Oh, Oh, it's a, you're picturing these little microscopic, uh, you know, green things floating through the air saying, wait, it's a George Pro- Floyd protest guys. We can't go over there. You know? <laughs> Well, that's why I emphasize the cultural aspect of it. No, I'm not, you know, was not arguing that the protests themselves were the the super spreaders. But I think what began to happen is you had this huge crumbling of the of the sort of the lockdown mentality. And then for those subset of Americans who are hyper political. And was it today that you were talking about hypocrisy and hypocrisy doesn't confer immunity Mm -hmm. to to consequences are still there, whether you you know. The fact that, you know, public health officials were hypocritical in supporting George Floyd protests or the fact that government officials were hypocritical in in voicing support for George Floyd protests when they condemned the anti-lockdown protests does not make you immune to the virus. Bingo. The fact that you can own the libs on Facebook because of their hypocrisy doesn't then mean you can go to the bar and enjoy immunity. Uh, And I think that's one thing that is especially for sort of the hyper-political subset of Americans, this relentless, remorseless reality that the virus does not care mm-hmm. has just, we've, we've come in and out of consciousness of that <laughs> throughout this process. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it is intriguing because, you know, when, you know, I don't know about you, David, but when, you know, when Trump got elected, following morning, I felt kind of relieved. You know, I, I had not been mm-hmm. a fan of his. I was like, oh, okay, you know, we're going to get some judges we like out of this, and chances are my taxes are going to go down. And, you know, and, um, <laughs> I think you can lay out a case, you know, up, up until the pandemic, you can lay out a case that, yeah, okay, he's a freak show of a personality. Um, he's bad for a whole bunch of stuff. But, you know, if, if you're a traditional conservative Republican, you're getting some stuff out of this you like. And, you know, and, and part of the thing was, oh, he's crazy. And the answer is like, up until, you know, we hadn't really faced a 9-11 style crisis. He hadn't mm-hmm. faced um, a great recession. You know, something that was going to, you know, and then it hit. Yeah. And it was a big one. And it was our bad national luck. It was just our luck that it was like probably one of the worst in 100,000 years. Because you think about it, you know, God, you know, 9-11 changed the country. 3,000 mm-hmm. people died in a day. Well, I just mentioned 170,000. And we're getting a 9-11 every two days or so. That, that's, well, and it's that's well bad, over you know, it's well over 200,000 excess deaths total. Yeah, that's the other, you know, earlier today on Twitter, because every time I write about the death count, somebody's like, Jim, it's overcount. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get hit by a, a truck, you know, and you're pest positive for a current, look, as far as I know, David, no one has classified George Floyd's death because of the coronavirus. Right. By the way, he did test right. positive uh, for coronavirus in the autopsy. Um, so I, I, I put out the question, like, okay, like I said, I use worldometers. If you prefer Johns Hopkins, fine. And in fact, I'm sure that there are some people who were 98 years old and who were likely to succumb to something yeah. if they had not succumbed to the coronavirus. Fine. I grant you that. What do you think a more accurate death toll is? Mm-hmm. It's 100, do you think it's 160? Do you think it's 155? You know, how, how much lower do you think it can be once you account for that? And as you mentioned, the, you know, the overall, we are now past 200,000 compared to a typical year. More than 200,000 Americans have died. 
Now, yeah. not all of that is the coronavirus. Sure. And by the way, I think some of this might be lockdown related suicides, drug overdoses, um, people who have delayed cancer treatments. Like been, the lockdown has had one hell of a lot of bad impacts yeah. on people that probably is adding to that death toll. But yeah. I don't think there's any way you can quibble with the death count number and say, oh, um, this wasn't a big deal. No, this was the biggest deal to hit America in probably a century. And because we're used to fighting wars, we're used to having an mm -hmm. enemy that we can punch in the face. It has really thrown us for a loop. And I, by the way, I think it also for the president, the coronavirus, you said the coronavirus doesn't care. The coronavirus doesn't care if you tweet nasty things about it. No, the coronavirus doesn't, doesn't care. care. Like, like there's no, like all of Trump's usual tools for when he's confronting a problem don't work in this situation. And at some point you can't spin it. At some point the death, people look at that death toll and say, I'm cleaning up my language because I don't know what the writing is for a, a the remnant. We go, holy crap, <laughs> that's a really horrible number. We've just yeah. been through something terrible as a country. Yeah, you know, I, I we, we've spent some good time on this and we'll move on in a second. But I, in many ways, I think that the, the coronavirus is almost made in a lab to, uh, <laughs> man, yes, I need it to was. revise that. <laughs> I need to revise that. <laughs> it was as if, it would, if you were going to create in a lab a crisis that would test Trump's weaknesses the most, in other words, it would exploit Trump's weaknesses the most, this pandemic seems to be tailor-made. The actual, the actual virus itself, as you noted, is completely immune to any sort of bluster, unlike a foreign dictator, unlike a, a foreign foe, unlike a domestic political foe, unlike a mayor, a governor, whatever, totally immune to political bluster. The response to it requires an incredible degree of organization, and the civil society aspect of it requires consensus building. Mm -hmm. So you had to have consensus building, you had to have expertise, you had to have organization to combat a foe that was totally immune to political pressure. And I can't think of a challenge less suited to Trump's skill set. Mm -hmm. I just read precision, accuracy, willing <laughs> to communicate bad news. None of these are, you know in, in the, the tr Donald Trump wheelhouse. Let's take a moment and thank our sponsor, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. Netflix has different shows and movies available depending on where you are. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries around the globe. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with zero buffering. ExpressVPN is available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, even your TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. It's so simple to use. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location, hit connect, and then refresh the page, and the show or movie you want to watch will magically appear. If you use Jonah's link right now at expressvpn.com slash remnant, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. All right, let, let's move on to um, the post office and the vote. I don't know if you saw, um, if you saw this announcement, um, but USPS Postmaster General, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, um, is that how you pronounce his name? Or is he going Louis with the French pronunciation? I'm not going to correct you. <laughs> okay. He's avoiding, um, he is now announcing that they're going to delay various policy changes that could have led to 
mail delivery delays, such as limiting overtime, some of the limitations on routes that they were drafting and had leaked out uh, last month. Um, and the, the post office, let, let's just begin like this. The post office can handle 150 million. If every American voted by mail-in, who's mm-hmm. going to vote? About 150 million people, roughly. The post office could handle all of that. All of that. Um, the post office can do it. It too. It what? What's the number, Jim? It delivers about three billion pieces of mail in the week before the uh, before Christmas. Correct. And you know, 150 million is that's in the neighborhood of what they do a day. So you know, for a lot of people, the post office. No kidding. Honestly, this is a just another day at the office. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the first thing that jumps out, and you know, it, it makes sense because you're like, okay, every American hopefully is casting only one ballot. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And you send out, you know, some people send out dozens and dozens of Christmas cards, right? So, you know, um, actually, I just brought up in front of me 500 million pieces of mail every day, more than 3 billion pieces of mail in the Christmas, the week before Christmas alone. And that's, you know, not just letters, that's also packages and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I am not, you know, on for a guy who freaked out about the coronavirus and all that kind of stuff, I'm not that freaked out about what's going on at the Postal Service. Um, Nick Harper, who is by no means a Trump fan, had a very good piece on Medium over the weekend, uh, a link to it in the Morning Jolt newsletter, where he basically goes through everything the Postmaster General is doing and basically says, there's a logic to everything that he's doing that makes sense for an institution that has been financially hard hit because surprise, surprise, people are mailing less, even with Amazon, everybody ordering stuff online. The, the amount, of mails going at, amount of mail going out, first class mail is down. The finances for the post office are down. So it makes sense to try to, you know, reduce cost efficiency, get rid of overtime. And, um, you know, in some cases this means, oh, you know what, you're going to take, we're going to take away the mailboxes that are least used. And instead of walking one block in this direction, you got to walk two blocks in the other direction. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is not correct that men in red caps are running around stealing mail trucks and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that leads me to a multiple choice question for sure. you. Evidence that the post office is engineering a voter suppression conspiracy is A, zilch, B, zero, or C, nada. Well, okay, there's one wrinkle I'll put here, which <laughs> okay. is that, first of all, there's Trump's comments to Maria Bartiromo, which basically might as well have been, yeah, I'm doing my best to get stop people from mailing, you know, it was, it was you know, basically played into every stereotype of this, because clearly Trump sees vote by mail as inherently illegitimate, except mm-hmm. when he does it. And, uh, and anybody who wants to do this is clearly trying to steal the election, cast votes for illegal immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. The other point in that Nick Harper piece, which is probably worth mentioning and is a really fair criticism. Look, this, this, the administration has had three and a half years to make any changes to the post office that it wants. Right? Right. There is an internal consistent logic to all of the steps they're making. Four months before an election where probably more people are going to vote by mail than ever before because people are understandably nervous about getting at a polling place, it's not the right time to go through and making these sweeping changes. Yeah, and, you know, that this totally is, agree with that. That this is on, you know, a, a matter of circumstances in which, yeah, you, you probably should have kicked this can down the road another five months because one, post office has the money to get through till probably the middle of next year. And make you know, people, you know, why are you taking away my mailbox? You know, people are going to complain about that about any type of circumstance. A couple months before election day, people are going to freak out about this. And I think they said they're getting rid of the, they're, they're put a hold on all of their efforts to remove mailboxes and make these other reforms and stuff, which is probably the right decision. 
Um, so I, I, I kind of bifurcate this. I say evidence that the post office as an institution is tampering with the election in a negative way, zero. Evidence that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, is intentionally engaging in an ongoing campaign to de essentially destroy voter confidence in the process, it happens every day. Yeah, um, and, and the other thing is that, um, you know, first of all, I think you, you don't have to be a crazy right-wing MAGA hat-wearing guy to say, I don't know if I want them mailing out ballots. Ballot applications, fine. But mailing mm -hmm. out ballots to everybody willy-nilly, I think you can understandably be nervous about that. Uh, because voter fraud does exist, it doesn't, it doesn't explain Trump's margin in 2016. It doesn't explain Hillary's 3 million popular vote margin. But it, it does happen. Um, and I don't, I get instinctively suspicious whenever somebody waves their hands and says voter fraud doesn't happen or something like that. And the second well, thing and, is that, was there, Oh no, no, go ahead. Second thing. Um, and the thing that I think I, I kind of, I, I, all right, this is where you get to, you know, not just rank punditry, but rank baseless speculation with <laughs> Jim and David on this podcast. So I guess we, you and I talked about the numbers for the postal service. They can handle this. No problem. They, they, mm -hmm. they can handle the amount of mail. David, are we certain state and local election authorities are ready to handle a whole lot more voting by ballot? I'm not so sure. And I kind of wonder if this is a little bit of preemptive spin, that if there's something goes wrong, God forbid, and a whole bunch of ballots don't get sent out in time, don't get returned, something goes wrong, that, you know, less than fully competent state election officials, say Palm Beach, Florida, you know, I know it's unthinkable. What? I know people can never imagine that. What? How, how could you cast aspersions on Palm Beach, Florida? Yeah. yeah, that this is preemptive spin to blame the post office when, in fact, local officials are just not ready to deal with this kind of volume you were, of vote by mail. You're way ahead of me because okay. the, the other aspect of so I, you know, I, I, I'm putting this into different boxes. One, is the U.S. Postal Service engaged in any kind of intentional effort to suppress the vote? Uh, that or to distort the vote. I just don't see evidence of that. Is the president engaging in an effort to cast his cast doubts on the legitimacy of the vote? Yes, absolutely. Are state officials prepared to handle the influx of mail-in ballots? Well, that depends on the state now, doesn't it? It seems like from the primaries. For example, New York City officials in the New York primary rejected about one in five of the mail-in votes that they got. And it took more than a month to count some of these races. Um, I was looking at my old home state of Kentucky. Uh, the two biggest counties rejected 15,000 absentee ballots in the Kentucky primary. Um, we forget that there are 50 different state elections on election day. And while multiple states have handled universal mail-in voting pretty darn well for a pretty long time, many other states don't have that experience. And, you know, the, the bottom line in my view is this is again a matter of there, there's just a real need for A, leadership and B, comp competence. We have to have a national, state and federal mobilization to prepare states and to educate voters. And I'm not sure that all the states are upholding their end of the bargain here. No, and it's where you can really see things shaking out. I, I made this piece of advice in the morning jolt. If in most jurisdictions, you know, if voting starts, I want to say, I think the earliest one's like 45 days before the election, right? But look, it is, you know, mid-August as you and I speak. You probably know whether you feel comfortable going to a polling place right now. Yeah. It's probably not going to change between now and November. So if you think you don't want to go to a polling place, 
By the way, as Anthony Fauci said, if you're using the precautions, if you're wearing a mm-hmm. mask, you socially distance, wash your hands, all that kind of stuff. He said it's no more, you know, no more risky than going to a grocery store. So, yeah. you know, if, if you feel like for some reason, but let, let's say you got a comorbidity or for whatever reason, you're mm-hmm. just really worried. Fine. I, I go. No problem. Um, figure out what your state's rules are now. Most states in recent years have really expanded how much they can do early voting or as they call it here in Virginia, uh, in-person absentee which sounds like a contradiction and I'm just going to put that one on Ralph Northam, whether or not it's his fault. Um, but this idea, you, you know, it's, it's, it's early voting. You go to either the county county office or, or, you know, some, uh, local government place. They have a set up a polling place. You go there, you fill it in and you turn it in. And then, you know, two weeks before election day or whenever you've cast your ballot and you've seen it go into the machine, you can rest easy. Oh, by the way, parties love this because each person who votes before election day is one less person they need to worry about getting out the vote on mm-hmm. for on, on election day. So you're not doing anything bad. You're not doing anything you know unpatriotic or wrong. Um, David, in the past, I've written about, I think, how the 45 days before election day strikes me as really high. And my suspicion yeah. is some year we're going to have somebody where, I mean, people might argue you had it in 2016, where, you know, the Hillary, indict, you know, Comey announcement mm-hmm. of Hillary. Um, people are going to cast ballots you know, news breaks, my God, he's in bed with a goat, you know, or something. And, <laughs> uh, you know, people, like, oh, I, I, I didn't want to vote for that guy. I didn't, I thought he was married to the other goat. I didn't think he was cheating yeah. with this other goat. And uh, people would then say, you know, I, I want to, I want to undo my ballot. And once you cast a ballot in this country, you cannot undo it. There's no, no give backs, no do overs. You know. um, but this year, considering the circumstances, you want to vote as early as you can, probably a smart thing to do. Um, yeah. And I was just thinking back to the, the 2000 Bush versus Gore recount challenge, you know, fight. A very big and fundamental fight at that point. It, there was, it, people remember the Dimple Chad. It's mm-hmm. not this cute kid who goes to private school, right? Dimple Chad <laughs> was this idea that you, well, you pushed through the ballot, but it didn't go all the way and you're supposed to make a hole in it. So there's this little indentation. Um, and the question is, should that count as a vote? And the argument of the Al Gore folks was very much, well, if you intended to vote, that's what matters. That, that all it mattered was the effort and you tried and the state has no business discounting your ballot just because you didn't push all the way through for right. the, you know, one one hundredth of a pound of, of push effort that was required to make that whole. And the argument of the Bush side is like, well, wait a second. Voting is a responsibility as well as a right. You, you know, they, they tell you, you got to fill out the forms. You got to register. You got to go mm-hmm. through the proper process to exercise that right. And if you don't do that, the state has every right to say, well, nope, sorry. You know, if you if it says vote for one candidate and you vote for two, sorry, your ballot is spoiled. It doesn't count. And that's I suspect you're going to see a rerun of that argument. And the Bush argument always struck me as much stronger. That intention yeah. by itself is not enough. That You actually need to follow directions. But if there's anything that 2020 has taught us, David, it's that Americans are not great at following directions. Well, and when you look at some of the, re- the reasons for the rejection of the ballots in these um, in these states, may- Quite a few are just flat out bad, large scale voter error. Uh, not signing the ballot, for example. If the ballot's not signed, it's not going to get counted. It shouldn't be counted if it's not signed. Um, so, you know, there has to be serious voter education. But David, they intended to sign. Who and did? Just, and forgot. So, yeah. therefore. <laughs> I'd like to thank our uh, sponsor, Keeps. This is going to be, honestly, y'all, a painful read for me. Um, if you've ever seen a picture, I don't have very much hair. Uh, but here goes. As guys, you know that a lot of our identity is wrapped up in our hair. 
uh, from how it feels after getting a fresh cut, and if I remembered that, to the way it's styled before going out. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it feels like panic time. Because let's face it, no guy is ever ready to go bald. Thankfully, now there's keeps. The simple and easy way to keep your hair. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. You used to have to go to a doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, and more than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Keeps treatment starts at just $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash dingo to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash dingo. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash dingo. Here, here's my, not to be uh, too negative, but here's, Here's what I'm getting worried about. I, there's a good, there is, I'm not going to say that race is probably going to tighten or probably widen. I'm going to leave that for your projection and rank punditry section of this podcast. But um, if this race tightens, what we have right now, according to the polling, is it's significant, Republican voters are indicating they're significantly more likely to vote in person. Democratic voters are indicating they're significantly more likely to vote by mail. That, and also that Republican voters have very low trust in the count overall. So right now, an NBC Wall Street Journal poll just said only 36% of Republican voters believe that all votes will be counted accurately. And only 23%, that's less than one quarter, say they're going to trust the mail-in count. Here's what I'm worried about with a close election. Uh, In-person voting is pro, and and I'm not the only one to come with this scenario. In-person voting is pro-Trump. That's counted quickly. And then he, he gets a lead of some kind and it starts to get eaten away by the mail-in. And to me, that's, to me, that's a, a, I'm not going to say nightmare scenario. It is a scenario that I do worry about a great deal because I think the best case scenario for our country at that point is something like a replay Bush v. Gore, but in a much more polarized country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four or five and, different and, states. And that worries and, me. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Both Bush and Gore uh, they both wanted to win during that recount process very badly, and they both made comments that I'm sure at the time you and I would have thought were, ah, oh, I can't believe they said that, but that all were, you know, tepid compared to the sorts of things that Trump will say. And between now, it, just recently, he said, if the only way I lose is if they cheat, right? Yeah. Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that nightmare scenario, Mm-hmm. Uh, David, because I'm I'm generally thinking about pandemic nightmare scenarios. I, I choose a completely different form of, of national doom and gloom. No. Um, I, I tell you, you know, maybe maybe I'm being <laughs> naive. Um, 
But my suspicion is, and look, you know, a lot can happen between now and November. But I think you look at the numbers right now. I don't think it'll end up being all that close. Um, mm. I think that you know, like the, I wrote something earlier this week saying that you know the the Politico had written. There's already signs that Kamala Harris is showing all kinds of, uh, you know, added all kinds of enthusiasm. And, you know, snap polls are showing terrific news. And all the polls that have come out, none of them have shown Biden's lead jumping any higher. No. It was already pretty darn high. Um, there, I, I honestly argue I don't think there's that much room for Biden to grow. I think that what you see here is just about we're, you know, we're a very divided country. I don't think there are that many persuadables left out there. Now, for what it's worth, I don't think Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. Um, I don't think they jump. I, I don't think she helps that much. Maybe <laughs> I think that as the race goes on, you'll see a little tightening. I think there are people who are, let's say, David, one step. Uh, well, yeah, so maybe somewhere who who you know people people who used to like Jim Garrity and David French till they became so <laughs> insufferable. You know, uh, people who are Republican, traditional Republicans who are frustrated with Trump, who will look at Biden being 77 and turning 78 right after the election, not being of the sharpest mind to begin with, um, and just figure, goodness, if I vote for this, I am voting to make Kamala Harris the 46th president of the United States. That strikes me as a nightmare scenario, making several Supreme Court justice appointments. She could have her Democratic Senate. She could have a Democratic House. I just can't do it. Certain Republican voters will come home, I I think, between now and Election Day. That said, Biden's lead is, you know, the, the small one was a CNN poll at four. The bigger ones were closer to 10. Um, the swing states aren't looking that great for Trump. You know, uh, he's worrying about states like Arizona. He's worrying, you know, uh, you know maybe uh, one poll has North Carolina tied. I guess that's okay. That's, you know, he only won by about a percentage point last time. Um, but the outlook doesn't look good now for Trump. And yeah. I, I, I don't see, I mean, look, maybe they announce a vaccine between now and election day. Maybe that would be a game changer. I think it would take something on that scale to really turn this back into a competitive race again. And because you look at these numbers, it's just not. Um, and you, it, I don't find that all that hard to believe because I think, particularly since the pandemic came along, Trump's been doing a bad job. <laughs> you know, every day yeah. he comes out with um, Giselle Maxwell. He's wishing her well. Like every day what he steps in a big pile of poop. That everybody was saying, "Don't step in that poop," and he's like, "Well, I'm, I'm going to show you. It's great poop. I'm going to step in it." You know. Um, <laughs> but today then, he says we might have to redo the election. Right. I mean, so every day he does. It, it was like every once in a while you come across somebody who has the argument Trump wants to lose. I don't think that's the case. No. But Dave, I'll just put it: if he was trying, how much differently would he be doing than what he's doing these days? And I think it all. Here's the thing. I think. I, I can make an argument that the country is better off with Republicans running the show than with Democrats running the show, even with this, this crew of Democrats, even with this crew of Republicans. I have a tougher time making the argument that the country is better run by the Trump administration, but I still think it's better than the Biden administration. Nothing, all of my frustrations with the president have not made me think, yay, Democrats in any way, shape, or form. And the toughest argument is to say the country is in better shape with Trump himself running the show, right? Um, Trump. You know, just about every day creates some sort of problem of his own making. Yeah. And the policy benefits for, for conservatives get smaller and smaller over time. Now, here's the thing. As I just laid out, President Biden, soon to be President Kamala, Democrat control of Congress, 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg hanging on by a thread. Like, there's a whole bunch of reasons for people to say, you know what, I'm going to hold my nose. I'm going to vote for the Republican. But uh, I don't see that swinging in numbers to put, you know, at this point. Again, things could happen in the next couple of months. But, uh, you know, people start voting in, in October. This is, this is you know, clocks, as, as Yogi Berra said, it gets, early, late, it gets late early out there. You know, the thing, one of the things that is fascinating to me about this whole, this really, you know, the last almost four years um, since since Trump was sworn in is the incredible, we have been through so many roller coasters of news cycles. I mean, just 2020 alone is, is mind-blowing. Um, we've been through the Russia stuff. We've been through Charlottesville. We've been through, I mean, you, we have been through so many roller coasters. And yet Trump's approval rating has been ridiculously stable at a low level. One of the really interesting um, data sets that you can find is if you go to 538.com and they have this sort of top line, how popular is Donald Trump, where they have the approve and disapprove numbers, uh, which is interesting by itself because it's a very level line for Trump by and large. But then you scroll down the page and you see how he compares with past presidents. And the one thing that you see is virtually every president in the past had these pretty substantial swings both above and below that Mendoza line, the 50% line. Um, you know, especially the, you know, the H.W. Bush with the highs with Desert Storm, George W. Bush, the highs post 9-11. Obama started off pretty darn high above that 50% line. With Trump, unlike virtually everyone else, it's just a st virtual straight line, which meant that Biden actually had a pretty stable lead of around five or so points, six points before the coronavirus. And even after the coronavirus, his stable lead only grew by about two. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it rarely have I seen somebody who's sort of so volatile a personality with so stable a public perception. It's really pretty remarkable. Yeah, that is a, a sharp observation. When you're going through the litany of things that have happened in, in you know this presidency, David, you didn't mention we were supposed to, we, we began the year, but we were supposed to go to war with Iran. Remember? Right. Like, that was the end of the world. Oh, yeah. World War III was starting. I yeah. saw the hashtag and everything. We were all ready to go. And, you know, instead it was a completely different horse of the apocalypse. Go figure. Um, the other thing that kind of jumps to mind, though, I think one of the things that I'm finding fascinating like like the historians the psychologists will have a lot of time a lot of fun looking at trump assuming anyone's around to do that um when, when they look at the degree to which i mean imagine if you know david you or i could mind control the president for the next couple of months he'd go out wearing a mask and he'd visit hospitals mm -hmm. he'd spend time with people who are suffering from the coronavirus he would go out and he'd give these unifying speeches about how we're all going to get through this, right? It would all these uh, insufferable commercials, uh, you know, in these troubling times. We, yeah. Wayland Yutani, believe we can work together, you know, all of the. But he would be this this unifying nonpartisan. He would stop complaining about Joe Joe Scarborough and the intern. He would stop bragging about his rating. He, he would stop taking the bait every single time. Mm -hmm. Every single time the Lincoln Project runs an ad, he needs to put out four tweets about how to, you know. Um, and that could get him probably very easily to 50-50. Like, you know, yeah. there's a reason he won. The country did not like the prospect of Hillary Clinton as president, even when the economy was doing reasonably well at the end of 2016. 
And even when by all the traditional measurements and he had done all these crazy behavior, people would say, you know what, I'll roll my dice. I'll, I'll roll the dice on this guy because I can't stand Hillary Clinton. And I don't feel like the country is nearly as good as the Democrats are telling me it is. He could do that again, but he would need to have just, just basic impulse control. He would just need, they would need to substitute his phone with a phone that makes it look like he's really tweeting to the outside world and tells him he's getting lots of likes and positive feedback, but that doesn't actually send that signal out to the world, right? Yeah. And the interesting, in 2016, Trump, I don't know what, I don't know how much he was able to control his behavior, but he seemed to get a little more focused and a little more on message in those closing weeks or months than, than he usually he really did. It's tough to tell. It, it wasn't miraculous, but there was just a little bit of that going on. This year, there's no indication he can do that. And I don't know if that's, you know, there's nobody around who's willing to stand up to him anymore. I don't know exactly what, or just natural aging and that he has mm -hmm. even less impulse control than he did back in 2016. You know, one other thing that I think um, is interesting, just looking at this 538 data, you know who else got really stable in his approval rating after the initial blast of favorable it's sort of after the the after the cinderella glow ended was obama i mean if you we're really reaching this point where it feels like american polarization is such that there's going to be a pretty stable you're going to have a very high floor if you have an r by your name and you're going to have a very high floor if you have a d by your name and you're also going to have a pretty low ceiling with an r by your name or a d by your name <laughs> that that's, that's the level of polarization. And that's looking like about a decade's worth of this is in spite of w quite a few different dramatic developments that have occurred over the last 10 years. The level of stability in those assessments is pretty stunning. I mean, and it's one reason why I think that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the country is, it's, it's one of the additional measures of our incredible polarization at this point that you could be very upset with a Republican president, but you're not going to say that if you're a Republican to a pollster, just because you're not going to give that, you're not going to give that satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's also that zero sum game, that sense that if you yeah. express disapproval of your side, well, David, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here uh, because clearly you're a Democrat, David, and you're a liberal David and you're all the, you know, all these things that, you know, right. Um, I, I remember um, on one of the gatherings, that my friend Kurt Schlichter likes to make fun of. Some people write a book about my friendship with Kurt because I know he's, you and he are not only seeing eye to eye. Oh, um, but we were on a cruise. He loves me so and, much, Jim. Yeah, he he you know, loves me. I, I got to get you two guys sitting down. You'd hit it off like old buddies. You know. <laughs> By the way, as much as you find that ridiculous, I'm sure Kurt feels the same way. Anyway, um, he was on a cruise shortly after Trump got elected. And somebody said to me, we all know that Trump is an A-word, but it's worse if you say that he's an A-word. And I was like, Really? Why is it worse when I say he's an A word if everyone can see he's an A word? He says, because then everyone will know. <laughs> what, they're not going to notice, you know, like, you know, shh, shh, don't bring it up. Trump yeah. says some nasty things on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, don't, it's basal faulty. Don't bring up the war, you know. Um, <laughs> you know like it's, so there, there's that. I, I also think, I, you know, when you listen to, People who are more ardent defenders, who I don't think of as being crazy, may not agree with them all the time, but I, I you know, think they, you know, they end up in this probably what's probably described as anti-anti-Trumpism, right? Yeah. And look, 
Jim Acosta does a lot to bring a lot of grief. And, you know, Brian Seltzer, you, you can go down the list of a whole bunch of folks who are left of center. The Democratic Party, Democratic talking head, industrial complex, the media, the, those people have un, you know, huge amounts of flaws. And I spent a decent amount of time writing about them, you know. Um, and there's kind of this belief that it, it took me a while to get my head around this, David, but, you know, people pushed all their chips to the center of the table in mm-hmm. summer of 2016 when it became clear Trump was going to be the nominee. They're like, okay, ride or die with him. And admitting that they could have gotten that wrong Boy. means that they were wrong about like, like deep core basic they don't, you know, knowing right from wrong, knowing good from bad, knowing up from down, like, you know, they, they, they tied themselves. At one point in this, I said to, um, there was a point when things looked bad for Trump in 2016. I went on CNN and I said, you know, cause it, I think, you know, Trump had started making noises about making an, am, an amnesty. Mr. Mm-hmm. Build the wall. Mexico is not sending their best. They're all rapists, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly is talking to amnesty. And a couple of, this might've been like the first rumblings of discontent from the and cultures of the world. And I went on CNN and I said something like, you guys should be handcuffed to that Titanic because you're <laughs> the ones who picked this. And when you guys go down, you know, you know, I was so confident Trump was not going to win. Right. Of course, right. The holy wins. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, Trump's Titanic hits the iceberg and the iceberg sinks. You know, yeah. go figure. <laughs> um, that's, you know, and, and for a long while it worked out. Well, now here we are. We're, we're Joe Biden. Joe Biden is mm-hmm. way ahead. And look, yeah. maybe Joe Biden will blow this. Who knows? Apparently, Barack Obama has some worries about that. But yeah. you know, if, as expected, the polls turn out and it turns out to be a big win by Joe Biden, of all people, and the Democrats have control of government and, and this is all, everything that all of us who were not fans of Trump were warning about, uh, I think, in fact, the, the, you know, the regular host of this podcast says all of this will end in tragedy or all of this will end in tears. <laughs> end in know. tears, yeah. yeah that, that, you know, Godot arrives, right? This, this yeah. day of reckoning that's been put off as much as humanly possible arrives. It'll be like, okay, well, there you go. These, these are the folks who were right. Trump managed to you know, beat Hillary Clinton. Go figure. Got some good stuff done as president. Got a whole bunch of other mistakes done as president. And along the way, a whole bunch of people died of a pandemic that they probably didn't need to die from. Right. Right. And, you know, so there's two things about the the one thing, one of the hallmarks of anti-anti-Trump, one of the short de- short ways you can determine whether someone is anti-anti-Trump is whenever there is really negative, ba- wherever, whenever there's unambiguously negative information about Trump, you often see a lot of these voices kind of fall silent for a while, because then what's happening is they're waiting to find the Democrat or the media figure who overreacts to it, because then that's the story. So it's not that Trump did something bad. It's that so-and-so at the New York Times was pearl clutching or so-and-so at CNN distorted it a little bit or, and then that, that becomes a story. And you know what? You always can find that. Mm -hmm. You always can find that. But the bottom line in my view is that the most powerful man in the world's actions are a little bit more important than any given CNN anchors or any given editorial page. Uh, it's any, you know, and it's not that these editorial pages are insignificant or that CNN is unimportant. We can mention them, but this, this culture that's arisen that says we're not going to uh, properly evaluate the president of the United States because the real problem is CNN or the Mm -hmm. real problem is New York times. That's short-sighted and destructive to our body politic because it also leads millions of people who follow these individuals to say, well, the real problem is the New York Times and not the most powerful man in the world. Mm-hmm. 
which is to me, that's an incredibly destructive mode of discourse. And then the other thing is that what I remember, I'll never forget this. And who knows how this election is going to come out. I, I, my view is barring something really spectacularly unforeseen. I'm with you. This Joe Biden looks like he's heading to victory, but we'll see. Um, But I remember after the uh, 2016 election, I was at a speaking event, a conservative Christian event. And one of the funders of the event comes up to me. He's very angry. I had been on stage uh, with Molly Hemingway and and, uh, we had kind of gone back and forth, had a polite disagreement about Trump and everything. After it was over, one of the, the funders of the event said, I can't believe they let you speak, <laughs> which was kind of funny because I was invited for the purpose of engaging in the discussion. Um, and he said, do you think it's better? Do you, do you think it would be better if Hillary had won? And I said, it's way too soon to tell. And he said he was quite taken aback. And I said, well, let's just take one. Uh, what's your biggest issue? So this is a conservative Christian at gathering. So he immediately went to judges judges. And I said, how many judges do you think the Republicans selected after Jimmy Carter's one disastrous term as president when Republicans held the White House for the next dozen years? I don't know. I said, around 570 federal judges and the absolute majority of the Supreme Court. I said, so it can be the case that a disastrous presidency can have generational consequences. And that's one of the things that a lot of us were worried about. And I remain worried about. It's a generational consequence. I mean, the, the, the country did not give the White House back to the Democrats until after the Cold War was over and won, after Jimmy Carter's presidency. And so this is the kind of thing that I am very, very concerned about. I think our country is so polarized that the Republicans will have a better shot of coming back faster. Um, but yeah, that... And it was interesting to that gentleman's credit. He goes, oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> oh, okay. Wait, are you allowed to do that? Wait, are you allowed to see that somebody has another point? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, Jim, we have covered pandemics. We have covered post offices and we have conver- covered punditry. But we have not covered any pop culture. What are you streaming these days? Anything of interest? Oh, um, my older son Emma, and I are watching, uh, we're three episodes into Outer Banks on Netflix. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of a young adult, uh, got a mystery element to it, um, shot in Charleston, South Carolina, and whatever the local chamber of commerce is paying them to promote the town, it's not enough because it looks absolutely gorgeous. Of course, it's, <laughs> the title of the show is Outer <laughs> Banks, and it supposedly right. takes place in this small place. In the, in the, so don't go to the Outer Banks, America. Go to outside uh, uh, Charleston because it's gorgeous. So kind of fun. Um, uh, I start, I, David, have you ever had this experience where you're, you're scrolling through Netflix or a streaming service, and uh, you come across something, and you start liking it? I got into the Spanish series Money Heist, right? It's about this elaborate, mm. think of it as like Spanish Ocean's Eleven. You kind of have okay. the idea. And then I realized, because I didn't know how long, it's got four seasons of 12 episodes. And I'm like oh. three or four episodes in. So I'm like, well, wait a second. I, this isn't going to end with, a, whatever happens, they got to get out of the bank. There, there's yeah. no way they're spending 48 <laughs> hours in that bank. You know, this mm-hmm. is going to, you know, and so I just kind of just lost my interest. Like, ah, okay, this this, this should have been a good miniseries. And I, the fact that it goes on and on and on. Uh, no, as, David, as far as I'm concerned, all life is just on hold until the Mandalorian comes back. 
<laughs> no, that's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm restreaming. Uh, mm. So I'm re going. I'm going back through the Americans. Um, did you ever see that? Um, the the this is the um, it was an FX series. Now it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, you know, you know, I tried to get into it. Everyone says this is a show I'd like, and I just never. I think it's a problem. There's not a lot. By the time I sit down on the couch, I want something light, happy, fluffy. Yeah. There are a lot of really good. We're in the golden age of television, and you realize it's all like dark, you know. I know. This cancer stricken, drug addicted gang warlord who's, you know, <laughs> adopted two children and they're handicapped. And it's just like, uh, you know, everyone's like, it's utterly heartbreaking. You'll feel like your heart is being ripped out every episode. It's so good. Yeah. Sorry. That's just not what I'm in the mood for. Yeah. I sit down on the couch yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, I kind of marinate in dark TV and the Americans is very, very dark and it's very, very good. And also I have to, you know, bubble basketball. The NBA's come back strong. But uh, for me, everything's on hold until Tenet in the theaters, the Dune trailer, and of course, Top Gun 2. Yeah. Top Gun 2. America needs it. I mean, do we not need a blast of patriotic Tom Cruise aerial action? Uh, so my one of my best friends in college, my roommate, who basically he, he didn't look exactly like Tom Cruise, but he looked a little <laughs> like him. And, you know, at some point, freshman year, he decides, you know what, I'm going to get that haircut. I'm going to walk around with the aviators. I'm going to walk around with that le leather jacket and all that stuff. Uh, my wife loves that movie. I think it's the volleyball scene, you know. And so <laughs> I am surrounded by people who, if you just say any line, they will then recite the dialogue on for scenes and scenes and oh scenes my. and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, by the way, I know there was an argument during the, you know, whole Black Lives Matter argument that we need to get rid of, we need to change the national anthem. I oppose it. But if you said the theme from Top Gun should be our new national anthem, <laughs> okay, maybe I got to think about this a little bit. That's a strong, strong argument there. But how do you sing a guitar riff? Like, that's do, the question. Do, 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 do. There, there you go. There well, you I'll go. just like, play air guitar in the stadiums yeah. when it, yes, yeah, that's a perfect note to end on. Jim Garrity singing the new American national anthem, the Top Gun theme. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to The Remnant. And Jonah will come back when I'm not telling you. 